We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Affirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those of him who have never heard will understand. Good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. Uh, Let me say welcome. If we have any visitors, I'm uh, particularly glad that you could be here with us as we continue through our series through the book of Romans. Uh, It's fitting that we've arrived here at this passage this week because uh, this week we're doing something we've become uh, accustomed to here at Emmaus, this bittersweet thing that we've coined gospel goodbyes. This is where members from our church are sent out from among us, uh, not just because they, they have a new job somewhere or um, are, are simply relocating, but, be, but particularly to be a part of a gospel work somewhere. And so um, we're, we're doing that for, for two different um, people this morning, the, the Gilos, uh, Marty and Chandler Gilo, as well as uh, Hannah Malam. Hannah's going to be in the seventh, second service, so you'll, um, you guys won't see her uh, tonight, but we're going to still pray uh, for both of them this morning as they're sent out. And uh, I think the Gilos are here, right? Is that right? There the Gilos are up there. I'm not going to ask them to come down with all their kids, but they're sitting up there in the back. Um, they're, they're the guys, the, the, the uh, tough guy with the tattoos and the, the big beard is Marty. So if you're, if you're looking for them after the service and you want to say goodbye, that, that's who to uh, go to. But they are uh, going to uh, Virginia to 
the International Mission Board, Chandler is going to be uh, working there as a clinical nurse for their training center. So they're going to be a part of that missions work. The International Mission Board is the largest missionary sending agency in the world. It's part of the Southern Baptist Convention, which we are a part of here at Emmaus. And uh, so they're, they're going to uh, join arms with that gospel work there. And then Hannah is going to be moving to Ohio to be a part of a, a new church plant called Trinity Church. Uh, Hannah came here about a year ago, and uh, basically from the beginning, she was praying about being a part of this work. Uh, it's going to start in November, and so she's going to move uh, there to be a part of their, their leadership team in preparation. She'll be serving on the music team, as well as uh, heading up some of the, the women's ministry and discipleship. So we want to pray for them. Um, it's also fitting for us to be here in this passage because this week, Jason and Isaac DeRoshi just returned from Africa where they um, did various uh, different kinds of ministry. They uh, uh, encouraged uh, the saints there. They did some teaching. They did some equipping for uh, the local pastors as well as ministry to uh, the, the orphans and the widows there. And so we'll get an update from them soon, uh, whether that's through a newsletter or some means like that for us to hear about what kind of ministry uh, they did while they were there. But we want to pray for all of these things, and then we'll jump into this uh, beautiful passage in Romans chapter 15. So let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now in prayer with grateful hearts. We are grateful for the way that you have worked upon and through Jason and Isaac Roshi in Africa. Thank you for using them as an extension of your comfort and care for our brothers and sisters in Christ there and for the true and undefiled religion that they participated in when they ministered to the orphan and the widow. We ask that you would multiply their efforts even still today for your glory. We thank you also for the call that you've placed on Hannah's life to serve at Trinity Church Lord, we lift up this new gospel work to you and we ask for you to bless it. Bolster up the leadership for the onslaught of spiritual warfare they are sure to experience in the coming months and year. We ask that you fill Hannah with your spirit as she sends, spends herself in the music ministry, in the women's ministry. May the church grow in the grace and knowledge of God in part due to Hannah's faithfulness there. We also thank you for the Gilos and the opportunity they have to serve with the IMB. Continue to bless their life and ministry as they join arms with others in the Great Commission work there. On that note, Lord, we ask that you bless Matt and Grace Nydig and the Swadley family as they too prepare to go to their respective missionary fields. Lord, so many of our members are spending themselves for the spread of your name among the nations, and we as we come to this text in your word, we are overwhelmed with gratitude. Thank you for gracing us with the privilege of being a part of your mission on this earth. We ask that you knit our hearts in love with our global family and feed us now with your holy word. Speak, Lord Jesus, for your servants are listening. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Summum bonum is a Latin phrase. It simply means highest good. Summum bonum is the highest good. It's a category that has concerned virtually all of the great philosophers throughout the ages. 
that question, what is our highest good? What is the most noble, most worthy goal for us to reach toward? What is our telos, our purpose, our end, that which we exist to be and to do? And what this question presupposes from the outset is something philosophers refer to as realism. That is, this highest value, these highest virtues that we move toward are real and objective and transcendent, which means they exist outside of you and me. We don't determine what the highest good is. The highest good exists. It's a fixed reality that you and I should endeavor to conform to and harmonize with. There is an ultimate good, an ultimate truth, an ultimate beauty that transcends our own individual lives. All the great philosophers have recognized this, even if they couldn't identify with absolute accuracy what it was. Plato called it the good, capital G, good. Aristotle called it the unmoved mover, the cause that caused all other causes and effects. Scripture goes many steps forward. Scripture doesn't simply describe this ultimate reality, this ultimate goodness, truth, and beauty. It names him. In Scripture, we are introduced to this absolute good. In fact, Scripture itself is this absolute good's personal self-revelation. The triune God himself is ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty. And through his self-revelation, he makes himself accessible to us. Now, why do I mention all of this? Well, this passage in Romans 15 describes for us our summum bonum, our highest good. Our highest good, our ultimate purpose, the single greatest, most noble thing, most fitting thing we could ever strive toward is the praise and worship of our triune God. Westminster Shorter Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism describes this highest good in this way. Question, what is man's chief end? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We are realizing our purpose never more fully, never more accurately than when we are living for the praise of this one true triune God. The mission of God that is the thing that he's doing on this planet, the mission expounded and told throughout this whole Bible is all moving toward this end, his praise. God has purposed for his name to be praised among all the nations. That, what, that is what he's accomplishing on earth. It's what he's been concerned with from the very beginning. That's what the nations were created for. And that's what he accomplishes in the gospel. Our passage this morning can be divided up neatly into two sections. The first tells us about God's mission all throughout the Bible. And then the second section tells us about Paul's personal life mission, which conforms to God's mission in the Bible. So let's begin. Look at verse 8 with me. These are the words of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now that first word for harkens us back to last week's passage in general and verse 7 in particular. Paul is 
expanding on his rationale for that command that he said in verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now remember what's going on here in Rome at the time that Paul wrote this letter. Paul is is, uh, writing to a church that was experiencing widening divisions along traditional and ethnic lines. It was a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles, and the tensions surrounding those differences were mounting. And Paul is concerned about their unity for a couple of reasons. The most pressing reason is, as we'll see from this passage, their unified praise of God is what God intends for them. It is more glorifying to God, more edifying to them, and is a fulfillment of God's purpose on this planet for them to be a united body, bound to one another by their common union with Christ. The divisions this church experienced were not honoring to God, and God, uh, Paul was jealous for God's glory in this Roman church. But there was a practical motivation for Paul as well. He intended to visit Rome on his way to Spain, which is what we'll see next week. He hoped that Rome would be a sending church for him, right? A church that could, that could supply for him and support him and pray for him and encourage him as, he, as they sent him off to Spain. That's what he wanted, which is not something that they would be prepared to do if when he arrived, they were still ravaged with division and hostility. So in verse 7, he says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For, verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is, the Jew, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Christ came to serve the Jews so that through his service of them, so that through his being their Messiah, fulfilling all of the promises that God gave to them, so that through all of that, the Gentiles might be blessed. So that the Gentiles might be included in these blessings. He came to serve the Jews as the Jewish Messiah for the benefit not only of the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. In other words, Gentiles glorifying God is not merely some bonus benefit of what he came to accomplish. That was his plan from the beginning. That was always his plan. The promise that God gave to the patriarchs, the promise was that their descendants would be blessed and multiplied and that through their lineage, the nations would be blessed. So Paul When Paul is inviting the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians to welcome one another, he's not offering them his mere preference. He's telling them to conform to God's purpose on this planet. And now he's going to prove this. He's going to prove that this has always been God's purpose by showing how this was God's purpose all throughout the Old Testament. He quotes from every major section of the Old Testament in order to show that this is not some obscure interest of God's. It's not a secondary thing. The law, the first five books of the the Bible, the Pentateuch, the prophets and the writings all testify that God is concerned with getting praise from the nations. So let's look at this. Verse 9, 
In verse 9, he quotes from 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, As it is written, Therefore, I will praise your name among the Gentiles and sing to your name. In verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 43. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. In verse 11, he quotes Psalm 117, verse 1. And again, it is said, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. In verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 and 11. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles hope. Now the context in all of these passages is, makes this passage so interesting. But the overwhelming point that, that Paul is trying to make is that this has been God's purpose from the very beginning. He's not changing the script here. He's always intended for all the nations to praise him. This last quote from Isaiah chapter 11 describes the Davidic Messiah. So that, that little phrase, the root of Jesse, Jesse was King David's father. So this Messiah is going to be a type of David. He's the Davidic Messiah whom God will raise up in order to deliver his people from their captors, and restore them to himself once again. But even for Isaiah, the expectation was not for this Messiah to come and benefit the Jews exclusively. This root of Jesse would rule the Gentiles. That's every non-Jew, just to be clear. He would rule the Gentiles, and in him, the Gentiles hope. He is the hope, not just of Israel, but of all the nations. And this root of Jesse is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who assumed a human nature in the womb of Mary, who came and lived in perfect obedience to the law of God, who died as a sinless substitute to atone for the sins of His people, who was buried in the grave, who defeated death, when he rose three days later and who ascended to the heavens where he rules and reigns and from there he will one day return. He is the hope of the nations. Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I want to point out several observations about this benediction. First, notice how being filled with with hope, is manifested in joy and peace. Do you see that in verse 13? Hope is manifested in joy and peace. And all of this flows from belief, believing. In believing the gospel, the God of hope fills us with hope and peace. But listen, this believing and this filling doesn't occur in a mechanistic and lifeless way. It's not automatic and impersonal. All of this occurs by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. When we believe, the God of hope fills us with joy and peace. Second, I want want you to notice the implicitly Trinitarian shape of this passage. This is beautiful. When we look at verse 12, the hope of the Gentiles there is clearly the root of Jesse. It's Jesus, God the Son. He is the hope of the nations. And yet, when, uh, but the, the God of hope who fills us with all joy and peace in verse 
13 is almost certainly God the Father. So verse 12, our hope is in uh, uh, Jesus Christ, God the Son. Verse 13, the God of hope, God the Father, fills us with all joy and peace. And yet, we abound in this hope by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Now, so which is it? Where is this hope coming from? Who is responsible for this hope? And this is confusing and difficult to appreciate only until we recognize that these three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are one God. The hope that we receive from the Son is the hope that we receive from the Father and the Spirit because their will and mission and grace toward us is one. Lastly, I want us to appreciate what Paul intends to identify as the glue that holds the Jews and the Gentiles together. This is so important. What is the glue that keeps Jew and Gentile together? What binds them together? It's not social reform. It's not education. It's not some shared perspective from an earthly level. It is praise. That's what brings Jew and Gentile together. Praise of Jesus Christ camaraderie among fellow Christians of different backgrounds, different ethnicities or ages or demographics or socioeconomic classes or nationalities, camaraderie among Christians of different backgrounds cannot be artificially drummed up. It arises organically as we collectively live more and more to the glory of Christ. The more consumed we are, by the praise of this glorious God, the more camaraderie we will experience with everyone else who is likewise consumed by the praise of the same God. That's a unity that transcends circumstances. And it is the only kind of unity that can weather the storms of political and social upheaval. The nations will rally together only when they rally around Jesus Christ, when they come to adore him. Verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So now Paul shifts his point of interest from the big picture, from the big picture of God's mission on this planet to his personal relationship to this Roman church. And he's, he's not speaking weightless words of flattery here. He means this. He really is grateful for the work that God has accomplished among the Roman Christians that he's heard about. He's grateful for it. So he continues, verse 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. That is, you know many of these things that I've written to you already. You may have known all of these, many of these things already. But I'm writing to remind you of these things. It's good to be reminded of first things. Right? It's good to be reminded of the things that Paul has been talking about in this letter. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister to Jesus, of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, the imagery in this verse is very interesting. Paul, first of all, says that God has made him a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, which is not all that surprising. Right? He often refers to himself as a minister to the Gentiles. He's had a unique call to go and preach the gospel to 
the Gentiles. And that's, that's, what, that's in part why he's writing this letter. He wants for the Romans to send him off to go preach to more and more Gentiles. So that's not all that surprising. But then he goes on to describe this ministry in priestly terms, which is not something that Paul is accustomed to do. He says that he ministers before God in terms of sanctified sacrificial offerings, priestly service. And this should paint a picture in our minds of sacred solemnity. Right? This isn't common ministry. This is a holy one. This is formal and mysterious and awe-inspiring. And the most striking thing of all is that the sacrifices that he presents to God are the Gentiles themselves. They are his offering, the Gentiles that he ministers to. The Gentiles that he ministers to as sanctified by the Holy Spirit are his offering to God. Now, Paul isn't saying that this offering is atoning for sin or anything like that. No, Jesus Christ alone is the high priest who offers the atoning sacrifice for sin. He alone is the sinless son of, uh, lamb of God who is the atoning sacrifice for sin. So Paul isn't suggesting that his ministry is atoning. In any way, it's not. But he is saying that he ministers to the Gentiles as an act of worship. Right? He endeavors to present his listeners, his students to God as an act of worship. This is why he says in Colossians 1, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. That's what he does. So this spirit-wrought holiness in the Gentiles is what Paul revels in before God. Not in a self-justifying way, but in a grateful and adoring way. As if to say, Lord, you have entrusted these people to me. And here I offer them back to you, having taught them your gospel. They are adorned by the holiness of your Holy Spirit. Here they are, God. They are my pride and joy. Their progress in the gospel, their joy in God, is his greatest delight and aspiration as a minister of God. And let me just say, brothers and sisters, there is, there is nothing like seeing your progress in the gospel. There is nothing like that for your pastors. It is so encouraging. We are so proud of you. When you, when you progress in the gospel, not perfectly, but when you're confessing sin and pursuing godliness and growing in the grace and knowledge of God, it is really special. Verse 17, In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And his work for God, again, is his offering, the Gentile, sanctified by the Spirit. For I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And let me draw your attention to a couple of noteworthy things about this passage. First of all, Paul refers to the Gentiles saving faith in Christ as obedience. Now, he's already done this in this letter. In the first chapter, in fact, when he said that, uh, when, when he said that, um, 
through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So he refers to their faith in Christ as obedience. And this is because the call to the nations to worship God, this central call for all the world, which God communicates all throughout the whole Bible, is an imperative. It's a command. Praise him, all you peoples. Praise him, you nations. This is why at the end of this sermon, like every sermon, I'm going to charge non-Christians to do something. I'm going to charge non-Christians, those who are not members of this church and therefore not directly under my pastoral authority, I'm going to be so bold as to charge you to worship Christ. And the reason is because he is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth and he commands it. He commands worship. Coming to Christ by faith is obedience to the gospel's command, which should be a profound comfort to us, brothers and sisters. How do I know if I'm obeying? Are you praising Christ? Are you coming to him by faith alone? That's obedience. That is obedience to the gospel. Second, I want you to notice how all of these things in Paul's life and ministry are things that we might be tempted to focus on. Like these things are, that make, would make Paul a celebrity here. And yet Paul identifies them merely as a means to an end his words and deeds, the power of signs and wonders and wonders wrought by the Spirit of God, all of them are intended to bring the Gentiles to obedience. It's all serving to the end of more worshipers on this earth. He doesn't call attention to them as reasons for admiring him. He goes out of his way to say otherwise. All of these things, Paul insists, are things that he has done in Christ. They are things that Christ has worked through him. And in this, you see that Paul is consumed with a single-minded intention to be useful to Christ, which is what brings us to verse 20. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That quote is from Isaiah 52, from that section in Isaiah 52 and 53, which is the suffering servant section. It describes the crucifixion of Christ. It describes the atoning death of Christ. So Paul's saying, I'm going to preach the cross where the name of Christ has not been named. Paul is consumed with orienting his life around this mission of God, which again, this mission of God is to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people for the praise of his glorious name. Paul's mission, Paul's personal life mission, his ambition, the thing that he's working towards is to spend his life in service of this greater mission. He's orienting his life around this greater mission of God's. And in this unique calling, he's called to be a pioneer missionary, which is to say that his ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. He wants to go to the places where people say, Jesus who? He doesn't want to build off of someone else's foundation. He wants to lay a fresh foundation for the gospel. Now, this is not to say that building off of another's foundation is wrong or inferior. It's not. It, too, is absolutely essential in this 
great commission process of the knowledge of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's essential. So Paul is not, uh, uh, Paul is not looking down on that. That's not the kind of work that Paul has been called to, however. He's been set apart to lay fresh foundations for the gospel so that others can come and build off of the foundations that he has laid. He aspires to go where Christ is not named, preaching the message of the cross so that those who have never heard will understand. And where do we go from here? I have three pastoral charges for us. The first is to every single person here, Christian and non-Christian. The charge is this, worship God. Worship God. Pursue your summum bonum, your highest good. This is what you're made for, friends. When I think about the world that we live in, one where self-obsession reigns and self-worship is the governing principle, my heart breaks. Oh, how far is the distance between what we were made to be and what we are, between what we were created to concern ourselves with and what we actually concern ourselves with. Friends, we trifle, we concern ourselves with and fret over and strive toward and sacrifice for such pitiful, trivial little things. It is a tragedy that the idols of our world are lacking and no devoted worshipers. They have plenty of them. We worship nature. We worship sexual desire. We worship the opinions of others. We worship money. We worship our reputation. We worship our feelings. And this is not just true for non-believers. We Christians, guys, we are so little concerned with the worship of our triune God as well. Is it not true? Friends, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that prayer, we ought to be begging God to set his name apart as holy and revered. Lord, hallow your name, hallow it here. Make your name holy, make it holy in my life, in my home, in my church, in my workplace, on my run, on my drive, when I eat, when I sleep, make your name holy. Lord, may the gravity of your holy name be the center of everything on earth, just like it is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, do we want that? Do we? Do we want the worship of heaven to permeate on earth? Do we want the recognition of God's holy, holy, holy name to be as commanding here as it is there? Just read the book of Revelation. See what's happening in heaven. What's happening among the saints and the angels who dwell in the presence of God? What are they doing? What can they do? They fall down and worship and reverent worship. Oh, that we would be struck with a fresh insight of God's grandeur. Oh, that we would contemplate him and live toward him and never be satisfied with a minimal amount of his influence in our lives. Oh, that we would consecrate our whole lives and set every bit of ourselves apart for him, for his glory, so that as Paul says elsewhere, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. That's the first charge. The second charge is for the Christians. I charge you, brothers and sisters, to be about the mission of God. 
This is not a select call for a select class of Christians, brothers and sisters. I fear we we do ourselves a great disservice when we talk about missions people. Right? When when we say the Swadleys, they're they're missions people. The box are missions people. No, brothers and sisters, to be a faithful Christian is to be a missions-minded Christian. Now, don't get me wrong, not every, not every single Christian has this unique call on their lives to go to the nations, to be pioneer Christians who uproot their families and move to a totally different context for the sake of the spread of Christ's name among the nations. Paul did not despise or look down upon those who built upon his foundations. The gospel spreads most often in imperceptible ways, like leaven slowly and surely filling out a loaf. And we are not doing ourselves any favors by underestimating the missional potency of raising children who fear God or of coding programs to the glory of God or grinding and pouring coffee to the glory of God or running a business to the glory of God or going to your kid's t-ball game for the glory of God, etc., So not every Christian is called to be a pioneer missionary who goes to the nations, but every Christian must be concerned with the nations becoming glad in God and singing for joy. We must. Hear me say this as clearly as I can. Christ's mission is to redeem a bride from every tribe and tongue and nation so that the nations would be glad in him and sing for joy and God's glory would be celebrated from coast to coast. That's what Christ is doing. And if you're not orienting your life in such a way as to be a part of that mission, your Christian life is in a real way missing out. It is sub what God intends for it to be. Not all of us are goers, but we are all at least senders, which means the Great Commission is our mission. That's our mission. That's not just some from our church. That's our mission. So when when one of our own is sent out from our church, we are participating in what God is doing. May we never consider ourselves passive in this. May we take ownership of this call. May it be our identity as a church, as a whole church, that we would be a sending and a going church. And by the way, not all of us are called to be pioneer missionaries, but all of us are called to be willing to be pioneer missionaries. And some of you may feel very uncomfortable right now because God may be calling you to throw your whole life into this mission, and you're frightened. God may be calling you to see the nations be glad to make your ambition like Paul's to preach the gospel where the name of Jesus Christ is not known. If that's you, just hear me say this. Reserve nothing. Hold nothing back. Pray that risky prayer. If you've never prayed that kind of prayer, I would encourage you to do it. The prayer that says, Lord, use me however you desire. Would you use me overseas? Would you have me relocate to partner with others in ill-reached areas? Here I am, Lord. Send me. My life is a blank check. My future is yours. Replace my plans for my future with yours. Pray that kind of prayer if you've never prayed it before. Pray it today. Don't squander this day, brothers and sisters. The last charge is for any non-Christian who may be with us this morning. I charge you. 
to come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to Christians in chapter 15, verse 7, said, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Listen, non-believer, if Christ has welcomed us Christians, then that means that we too were at one time estranged from him. Which means your distance from Christ this very moment is not a hindrance to coming to him. It's not a hindrance to his welcoming you. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ is the name of a small book by the Puritan pastor John Bunyan. And in that book, he writes this. I want to read this section from his book as an invitation to you. This is what he says. This doctrine of coming to Christ informeth us where poor, destitute sinners may find life for their souls, and that is in Christ. This life is in the Son. He that hath the Son hath life. Who may have this life? I answer, poor, helpless, miserable sinners, particularly such as such that are willing to have it. He that thirsteth for it, he that is weary of his sins, he that is poor and needy, he that followeth after him and crieth for life. Upon what terms may he have this life? Freely, sinner, dost thou hear, thou mayest have it freely. Let him take this water of life freely, freely without money or without price. Sinner, art thou thirsty? Art thou weary? Art thou willing? Come then and regard not your stuff for all the good that is in Christ is offered to the coming sinner without money and without price. He has life to give away to such as want it and that hath not a penny to purchase it. And he will give it freely. Oh, what a blessed condition is the coming sinner in. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. That is your charge if you're not a Christian this morning. Paul says that as often as we eat and drink this communion, bread and cup, as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. That's what we do here in this meal of communion. We proclaim the victory of Jesus. It is a bold statement to defy the powers of darkness. It is a preemptive victory meal to celebrate the strongholds of unbelief that God will tear down through the mission of his people. It's a preview of coming attractions, a placeholder for the great feast that we will enjoy in glory with our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, he communes with us here and now as we partake. He has set a table for us in the wilderness. Listen, this is also a family meal. And in celebrating it, as we celebrate this meal of communion, we are joining ourselves to the global family of God, this trans-historical, transnational church of Jesus Christ. So Christian, with your eyes set on heaven and your hearts bound with Christ and all who are united to him, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to partake of this meal with resolute joy. If you're not a believer this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you don't affirm that your sin separates you from God and elicits His divine wrath, if you have not come to Christ alone by faith alone for the forgiveness of your sins, please don't take this meal. 
For you, since you don't believe and affirm these things, this meal is at best an empty religious ritual and at worst a lie to, uh, to win the approval of others. And we don't value either of those things here at Emmaus, but we do value honesty. So we would encourage you, if you're still wrestling with these things, we encourage you to continue to do so in your seat as you watch those of us who are believers declare with our actions our confidence in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to pray and then ask for the believers to come down. You'll exit this row to my left. Uh, get your hand sanitizer, receive the elements over here to my right, and return to your seat along this aisle. Let me pray for us. Lord, take this word and do with it what no sermon could ever accomplish. Feed our souls with your word. Feed our souls with your word. And now with this ordinance. Lord Jesus, you have spread a table for us in the wilderness of life. We ask that you commune with us now as we take this bread and this cup. Nourish us with your presence. May those who are currently excluded from you be drawn in. May you bid them to come and welcome. And as they watch your saints meet with you at this table, may they be drawn into your fold. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, God, knit our hearts together in love with our global family who shares this same meal. May we be burdened and resolved to invite many, many, many more to come and join us here in this table fellowship so that your glory might be reveled in among all the nations. Father, we beg you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ the righteous, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Holy Trinity. Amen. I love you, Emmaus. Come and take. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.